Hi everyone, Gareth here. Just to let you know that if you'd like to support the production of the Music Room podcast, you can. Just head to musicroompodcast.uk slash support or click the link in the show notes. Okay, on with the show. Welcome to the Music Room. This time in the music room. Apologies to my brother, who I forced to be in a little band with me. Um, <laughs> when like aunties and uncles came to the house, we used to um, make him play guitar, and I would put, auto, you know, the little automatic tunes you can play on the keyboard, and I would play the, the recorder, and we'd, I'd make a little program and hand it out to people, <laughs> ending from an early age. Hello and welcome to The Music Room, the show where I chat with composers, songwriters and musicians about what they're up to before heading back in time to find out how it all began for them. Today's episode is a cracker with Lindsay Miller, a musical director for MD for theatre productions. I'll give Lindsay a proper introduction in a bit, but first, how are you? I hope 2023 is going as planned and uh, if not, you're still getting creative, whether that's on a personal or professional project. I'd love to know what you're up to, so get in touch. You can follow The Music Room on Instagram or even join our lovely little community on Facebook. It really is lovely. And tell us there. And if you're in that community, hi, I'll be back in a bit. (laughs) Anyway, if you look in the show notes to this episode, you'll find the links to everything Music Room. Otherwise, just head to musicroom.community and you'll find everything there too. Rhino, it's time for some music stories. City Hall has signed off on a £100,000 boost for the music industry in Belfast. According to the Belfast Telegraph, elected representatives at Belfast City Council approved the allocation involving three branches of the industry in the city, with funds going towards investment in venues, a new digital music and marketing platform and industry mentoring. £20,000 was approved for the Pipeline Investment Fund for music venues, £50,000 for the creation of a digital music support service and marketing channels, and £30,000 towards the development of the Music Industry Mentoring Programme for 23-24. So if you're in Belfast, Northern Ireland, maybe investigate further. Next, I asked the Music Room community on Facebook a blankety-blank. We do this every other week. The one thing I wish could be automated in my music process is blank. Go on, what would you say? Valere Speranza says, mixing, mastering, producing the 30 seconds, 15 seconds edits and filling in the metadata. That's a production music library thing, isn't it? Uh, To produce edits. And yes, that would save time. Mike Langley says, stems, similar thing. Um, I agree with the edits. Quite like mixing though. Uh, Feels like part of the process to me. Ross Hemsworth says, placement. (laughs) Amen to that, brother. Uh, Jamie Salisbury, conforming to new picture edits. Uh, that would be great. So when you're writing to picture, you line up the music to when scenes change and everything. So if the editors send a new edit, it can take ages to adjust all the fine timings that you already have. So like that, Jamie. If you can organise that, please, that would be great. Uh, lots of other things like uh, automatic transcription. Yeah, great. Uh, so with all the talk of AI going around, this is really interesting. Don't take our jobs, AI. Just help us do our jobs more efficiently, please. I think I speak for the composer community on that.
Lindsay Miller has worked in the theatre industry as an MD and keys player for 13 years. She's also a composer, arranger, orchestrator and keyboard programmer. She's been musical director for the 2023 Royal Shakespeare Company's production of Julius Caesar. The production played the Royal Shakespeare Theatre at Stratford-upon-Avon before embarking on a nine-week UK tour. Let's get into it. Lindsay Miller, welcome to the Music Room. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Very welcome. Um, This is the second time we've been on a podcast together. The first time you were talking about the book you wrote about your experiences in North Korea. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Just uh, on the on the social media, they all say, I'll let that sink in for a minute, <laughs> but I'll leave, <laughs> I'll put a link in the show notes to that episode because it was really fascinating and it shows a different side to your creativity. But today we talk about your music. You've just finished MDing a tour with the RSC around the UK. I have. Amazing. How did that go? It was great. Yeah, good. It's been a six month contract, this one. So we started rehearsals in January. And an eight-week rehearsal process, and with our director uh, Autry Banerjee. So he was directing first time, I think, um, on major production RSC in the Royal Shakespeare Theatre. And yeah, very exciting young company. And what's quite nice about working at the RSC as an MD and as a musician, um, whether you write music yourself or not, is actually getting to work with composers who come in and create a brand new score for each show. And it's quite amazing that I think the RSD and the National are the one of the only sort of two remaining big houses left that commission new music for all of their production. So so that's part of the, well, actually the major reason why I enjoy working there is getting to work on completely new music and, and being able to feed into that in the MD is really exciting and is a lot more exciting to me than sort of other work I've sort of done earlier on which was a lot more kind of working on pre-existing material. I like the devising and creating process. So yeah, it's been great. Yeah, six months. Yeah, yeah. and if you follow Lindsay on Instagram, which I do, and and by the way, the best stories, just <laughs> they'll make you smile, go and follow her. It's, it's, you know, lots of puppy and dog content. Um, oh, lots of dog content, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's just very uplifting to, to read those. Um, oh, that's good. What was it? What was my point? Oh, yes, you, uh, you were posting your various locations where you were staying and performing. Did you have a favorite? Was there there was a, a favorite show or a favorite place that you stayed? Um, I really liked Newcastle. I really loved Newcastle as a city. It was quite special to go back there actually because the last time I had been there was um, February twenty twenty, just oh. as the first lockdown was called and COVID was kicking off. And I was there with the RSD actually doing three shows in rep. And we just, we were doing two weeks in each venue and we just opened the second. And we were in the middle of picking the third about to open that. And the lockdown was called and all the theatres closed. And then all, all of us were going, what do we do? Um, and then I, the next day was on a train back home. So I hadn't been to Newcastle since then. So it felt really odd being back there in that theatre and going, gosh, the last time I was in here was on that snap goodbye, you know, and can I hug people I've spent the last Mm. year and a half of my life with, you know, but it was great. You know, we got to do the whole week, but I really liked the audiences there. They're really up for it and really curious audiences as well. Um, And quite courageous actually with the kind of things that they like to go and see and the discussions they have about shows. Yeah, I think Newcastle is definitely up there. 
Yeah, nice one. I personally, I haven't been on tour like that before. Mm. It must be satisfying, but physically draining to be, you know, living it 100% of the time. What do you look forward to most when you finish a tour? Because obviously you just finished now, haven't you? Yeah, I think I look forward to being, like having some quiet space. I'm actually, it's funny, I'm quite a quiet person in my own time. And I, I will quite happily sit in my house without any music um not reading anything just sitting quiet <clears throat> my husband often says you know I can't believe you can just sit in the silence for all that amount of time yeah but I think it's a thing I, I've talked to musician friends about this and they say similar things where I think when you're you're listening so in, in a way that it's so targeted and so close and um detailed and you and you're active all the time it's really nice to just kind of step out of that so at the end of a tour, or when I can on tour, I like I like things that sort of bring me into quiet. You know, I practice yoga. I like reading. Um, I, I I just I like being on my own. Um, I think also with MDing because you it's I, I explain this to a lot of MD students I've worked with that I think eighty percent of it is music. Um, actually, sorry, wrong way around. About ten percent of it is music. Um, about seventy five is people management and the rest is emails and right, and wow. it's and it's really being around it's managing people working with people so having time to yourself i think is really important so that's kind of the main thing i really look forward to that's fantastic well now we've talked about the tour are you ready to go back in time let's do it so here we are back in time so lindsay how young were you when you first became aware of music? Oh, I think in terms of theatre, as early as I can possibly remember, um, my parents are not musicians. None of my family are music. Well, they're musical, but in that they appreciate music, but no one is a professional musician. They're all teachers. And I grew up watching videos of the old sort of 30s, 40s, MGM classic. So when kids in school were talking about how they fancied Peter Andre or <laughs> or Victoria Beckham, <laughs> um, I was talking about Howard Keel and how much I loved Catherine Grayson. And they were all looking at me like, what? Who are these people? Um, and that that was just what, what I grew up with. I, I used to watch those films over and over and over again. And my parents would watch them while they were doing the ironing and I'd just sit onto the ironing board just watching and take it all in and I used to recreate all the dance routines thing. but on the other side of that I mean my parents are, enjoy music and my dad listens to a lot of rock music so as a sort of alternative to that um I always I always remember ACDC being on Billy Ray Cyrus oh, um ELO State of Quo um Beat Purple you know bands like that were just you know cassettes and the little cassette storage box that they used to kind of go through and play God, you could have gone in a, an entirely different direction, couldn't you? <laughs> Those influences. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, is that your taste then? Do you have that kind of nostalgia for heavy rock music? Oh, absolutely. I think I have I have a very nostalgic taste in music anyway. You know, people say to me, like, what do you listen to? I really do listen to anything and everything. I I have always, I think it's more the style of certain music. Like, I love a strong beat. 
I really love strong syncopation. It just really hooks me in. And that, and that is kind of the main thing I go for. So whether that's EDM or it's, you know, 70s rock or whether it's, you know, Motown, that stuff, that is what's going to hook me into that piece of music. Interesting. Yeah, a lot of people say melody and especially composers mm. will say melody. So it's really interesting to mm. hear from someone who uh, has the same effect with rhythm. So that was at home. Were you going to the theatre as a youngster or, you know, what really tuned you into the, the potential of actually learning an instrument or, you know, anything like that? I mean, I didn't learn. So I play piano. I didn't learn that, start learning until I was about seven. So I was, you know, a little older, I think, than a lot of other sort of peers that I've spoken to. But um, theatre was, I feel very, very lucky. And it's a big part of the reason why I feel very passionate about getting young people into the theatre is that I wanted to see a musical. I'd seen so many on the television Um, and I used to recreate all the dance routines and I I could, I still, the the sound of those scores, I remember every little clarinet, you know, little little bit and and every heart lick and it's just in my muscle memory and my parents, every year for my birthday would buy theatre tickets and we would go through to Edinburgh or through to Glasgow and go see something. So it could it could have been anything from like a local amateur group, you know, that were putting on a production of something or um, the touring version. I remember going to see Miss Saigon and that was a big sort of turning point for me. But we always went every year. My birthday's New Year's Eve, so it was so there was always kind of a lot of shows on at that time. But yeah, I feel very lucky that they did that. And that was where I became quite curious about what else went on in the theatre, not just on the stage. But I would spend a lot of time looking over the pit and and just oogling, just like all these amazing things, these instruments <laughs> and people are sort of crawling around and um, wondering sort of what was down there. And again, so interesting. I have friends who work theatre musicians who said they used to do the same thing. Um, so I think it's amazing, even from that young age, you know, you, when you show an interest in that, it's really important that there's some some uh, way to access art, you know, to encourage that curiosity. Yeah, it's interesting you say it was something special to go to the theatre, you know, on your birthday. Then mm. uh, I'm sure that nostalgia connected to that special treat kind of adds to the magic, doesn't it? Oh, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned Miss Saigon and that was a bit of a turning point for you. Uh, why was that? I remember I went with, so my dad, my dad's a retired head teacher and his school was organising a trip to go see the show. And um, quite often, you know, if these school trips were running, my mum and myself and my brother might join. And we did on that occasion. And I, I remember being in the Edinburgh Playhouse and I had never seen anything that spectacular on a stage uh, with the heli, you know, the helicopter comes down and they've got mm. the fences and there's people singing, crawling up the fences. And I hadn't ever seen anything that was based on, you know, a, a real situation which had happened, you know, with that war. And, and there was really something very powerful about it. I'd been to see some, I remember going to see a couple of offers afterwards, but it, I think it was the first thing I'd seen that had been really sung through the whole play. And that the music just felt like this enormous character in itself that I really hadn't maybe appreciated as much in other things I'd been to see. 
where for me the emphasis had been on what I was seeing whereas that was about how it felt and I could I remember feeling it in the auditorium with the subs going and the strings and and at that time that was when there was a much bigger touring orchestra as well I I don't remember how many but I it, it was quite I remember it was quite sizable um so I think that was a lot to do with it yeah there's something about the community of watching something you know with a with a load mm. of other people as well and feeling that electricity in the room isn't there you can feel it at certain gigs and things like that where it's just really special mm. So when you saw Miss Saigon, had you already started your own musical learning uh, at that point? Or was it something that spurred you on to learn the piano? Or how did that yeah, all fit together? I had. I think I'd been learning piano for a couple of years. I think I was about 10. Um, I, I was certainly still in sort of end of primary school. So I, was, I think I was about 10, 11 years old. And I'd been playing piano for a couple of years. And I was enjoying it. But the thing I found with it was that I didn't like practicing. And the reason I didn't like practicing I was because I didn't so like... so much. <laughs> oh, it's so boring. <laughs> I, I, people who say we enjoy practicing... The lesson. <laughs> <laughs> but my, my parents were really good because they... I, I, we couldn't... We didn't have a big piano. I had a little Cathio keyboard is what I practiced on at home. Right. And um, uh, on the kitchen chair, the kitchen table chair... And um, that was what I practiced on. And my parents, like, forced me to practice. And they would sit and watch me. And they'd go, right, 30 minutes scales and arpeggio, 30 minutes pieces. And they would time me and watch and, like, make sure I did it. Because I would try and talk my way out of it. Um, just have it and have a chat. And, and so they were quite good at forcing me to, to practice. And I'm really glad they did. But I think a big element of it wasn't just where it, because you're building the skills to then, you're learning the rules to then take them apart. And I wanted to take them apart because I had lots of, I'd seen all these amazing things and I was like, I just want to do that. But it was the community element of it was what was missing. And when I, my, I remember my first piano teacher had a little concert for all her students in a little town hall. And I played a piece in front of people. And it wasn't, a lot of kids, you know, say, oh, it was great at the end. I got to stand up and take a bow and everyone clapped. For me, it was actually being able to listen to other people and be in a room where other people were doing that thing too. And I really wanted to play with other people. I didn't want to sit on my own in my house. You know, I, I wanted to go collaborate. And I didn't know that at the time. I do now. And I can totally see the signs of that um, now. But that that really would have motivated me, I think, if I'd maybe been in a little band or something. And I did, um, you know, apologies to my brother, who I forced to be in a little band with me. Um, <laughs> when, like, aunties and uncles came to the house, we used to um, make him play guitar. And I would put, auto, you know, the little automatic tunes you can play on the keyboard. And I would play the, the recorder. And we'd, I'd make a little program and hand it out to people, ending from an early age. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and you, I mean, just again, things like that. That that it's interesting looking back at that stuff and going, oh yeah, there's there's signs there of that natural kind of again instinct to collaborate and be in a group and yeah. boss people around. Yeah. And um and make make new music you know, the performance well, it, for people. It's interesting you're saying, you know, the opportunity to play with other people, that's what you really wanted. 
I started on the cello. I'm, I played the piano as well, but I started mm. on the cello, and that it was almost a condition of getting lessons from the school that you attend orchestra. So mm -hmm. it, it, you didn't even think about it. It was just you were shoved into that situation where you're playing with other people, which I'm incredibly grateful for in a, in a sense because I wouldn't probably wouldn't have sought that out. But I suppose on the piano you had to actually seek out th those opportunities to to play with other people. I hadn't really thought about that before, but it's um it's mm. different for pianists. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, that I, I I do think about that sometimes. I mean, my my second instrument, although it's very rusty, is the flute, and that was when I was much older in sort of high school. And and I had to do the same thing. I had to play concert bands, a jazz band, mm. and I'd been singing some choirs and doing these things, but that was really nice because you're in a section, you know, and and you have someone, you know, at least well, at least like one or two, three people sitting next to you who are playing the same instrument. You go, this is great. And I just yeah. didn't have that on the piano at all. It felt very much like a very isolated little island. And that, again, with the link with theatre, that playing with someone who's singing was, was an option, you know, where playing a different instrument might not have been such a natural yeah. progression collaboratively. So moving on from, you know, learning piano and going to the theatre did that inspire you to go into further education for music or what happened there so I did when I was at school I did do music as part of my exams and what where what used to be called hires and advanced hires I don't think they exist anymore um but going to music school I mean I actually wanted to be an actor for a long time and I used to do all the local amateur dramatic societies and pantos and I was in a Shakespeare group and a street theater group ah. and I was an I was an actor and I was like I want want to be a performer and um but but training in musical theater didn't just didn't feel accessible to me it was very expensive it was in Glasgow and Edinburgh I mean I'm from Glasgow originally but I've grown up in lots of small towns it felt very far away very alien and I didn't know anyone who did that um and so I kind of thought, well, I'll keep it as a hobby. I'll keep music and theatre as a hobby. And by the time I went to university, that was really ingrained in my way of thinking was this can always be a hobby and something to do alongside my real job, which I decided would be a teacher. And so I went to university and I studied French and Spanish. And that was with the view of doing my degree. I'd go and train for a year to be a teacher, get my PGC, and then go off and be a secondary teacher and work my way up to head teacher like my dad had done and when I was at university I, I did a year abroad in Spain teaching English in Valencia and when I was on that year abroad I just I was so tired and bored of of doing these languages and the reason was because they'd been so I, I just wanted to learn I love speaking as you can tell um, but I, I just really I really wanted to communicate. I wanted to be able to speak. And a lot of the emphasis was on reading and really academic kind of work. And I wasn't really interested in that. And serendipitously, I had been talking to a friend who was in a lot of the a cappella world uh, in, at that university, and uh, St. Andrews. And I said, you know, I really miss doing theatre. And just before I'd gone to uni, I'd actually accidentally ended up MBing a show because the person dropped out and I conducted the, the Amateur Dramatic Society in Kerry Muir doing a little cabaret show. And I said, look, I really, I really miss doing that. I, I really wish I could join like the musical society, but I don't really know how to go about doing that. 
And she had just sent me an email and had said, I've just met someone. They're putting on a production of a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. They need an MD. You want to do it? And I went, okay. And then when I came back from Valencia, I just kind of went, this is, this is what I love. And I spent the next few years in my degree not doing any work for my degree, <laughs> but just doing shows. I was writing music for shows, emptying shows. We, had, we did Jerry Springer, the opera, um, which was a phenomenal thing to do. I was accompanying loads. I ended up getting a, a piano accompaniment scholarship. And a guy who, Ben Murray, I credit with helping me get to where I am now, who is um, the, one of the first people who studied the MD course at Royal Scottish, came, had gone to St Andrews and came back to play on Jerry Springer. And he'd said to me, you know, have you ever thought about doing this course that's the, uh, the, at the time the academy it used to be RSAMD? And I said, no. And he, he went, well, why don't you come through to Glasgow? You can come meet the staff and just see what you think. And again, it just seemed like a totally alien world. I was like, I'm a teacher. I'm going to be a teacher. I'm going to be a head teacher. So, you know, it still was in the back of my head. <laughs> yeah. Even though I was doing it all at uni, I was like, oh, you know, I just never thought that you could pay a mortgage and like fund a life, you know, with money from the arts. So it just didn't seem feasible to me. But I went through to Glasgow, met the staff, and Ben was so kind and let me sit in on a lot of his classes. And I remember sitting on the steps of RCS and drinking a coffee and just being, I was so emotional. I just went, I, I belong here. Like, I need to be here. Oh. Um, it just felt so right. And I auditioned. I didn't get in. And that year, I was like, I don't, what am I going to do? And I was doing Fame at the Fringe. And the production company who were doing Fame, I ended up sort of stepping into the MD role because an issue, there was an issue with the MD. And then they, because they'd seen my work and said, we were taking Blues Brothers to the West End. Do you want to do it? And I went, uh, yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. And ended up MDing, did all the orchestration, played in the band, fixed the band. We did a month-long run in, in town. And then I did a show at the Lowry, which we just were at with Caesar a couple of weeks ago. Um, and and then work kind of dried up. I went back to waitressing for a bit, saved up some money, and then reapplied and got in. So... So this sort of thing of like keeping it as a hobby, it still feels that way to me because when people ask what I do and I say I'm a musician, I feel like I'm not really, I, I never describe my, my job as a job. I, I never ever say I'm off to work. I'll say, oh, I'm off to rehearsals. I'm off to the studio or I'm off. You know, I never ever say I'm off to work. Um, I feel very <laughs> lucky for that. Um, but yeah, it could have all gone the other way. Um, so thank you to Ben Murray for yeah suggesting i come in and sit in because i really don't think i would have ever gone for that opportunity had he not said that wow that's amazing it's really nice to acknowledge the people who have been kind of a milestone in life isn't it so that's mm. that's nice you've um included him in that um i ask all of my guests to leave an item and a piece of advice in the music room for others to find. And hopefully that's helpful to other people in the music industry. Firstly, what item would you like to leave in the music room? I would leave my old Casio keyboard Yay. in the music room. <laughs> and I wish I could remember the model. It was, it was, you know, from Argos that I got for Christmas one year. I think I would, I would leave that because it signals to me that you don't need, you know, I, I didn't have a piano. 
I didn't have a big fancy piano. That wasn't something that my parents had. And I still was able to nurture a skill on something else. Um, and that it, it is accessible, music is accessible. And and also whether that's playing a recorder, you know, I remember when I was a kid, I used to go to a group called Semi Quavers, you know, when used to send me to, and that was like hitting Pringle tubs filled with lentils and, you know, Amazing. shaking box, boxes with broken shells in it and things like that. And that was making music. So I think I think I would leave my Cassie keyboard in there for that reason. Yeah, that that's really interesting, actually. And hopefully we'll speak to lots of composers who think that, you know, getting the latest sample library will make them a better composer when, in fact, it's not the case mm. at all, is it? So your advice, what advice would you like to leave? My piece of advice would be that your creative priorities will change and that's okay. And it's important to listen to yourself of like what is going to creatively satisfy you. And it, you know, when you're a kid and you might be dreaming of being an astronaut, but as you get older, you might have other dreams and you might then want to, you know, work in the fire service or you might want to be a musician or you might want to run for prime minister or you might, you could, you could want a whole host of things and they're not wrong. But just as you, as you grow and you start to live more and more of your life you're going to start to have different priorities and different focuses and I think something that I've kind of really discovered over the sort of last five six years is especially sort of effect from training at music school is that I felt very much like I had to be a certain thing or do a certain something to feel like I was worthy and I'd achieved and that I was you know I was I was really really doing my best and actually it's not it, those things can can change over time what what is you know musical for my passion for a long time but plays under my passion and I think it should be important to listen to yourself and listen to how your need listen to what your needs are and and just ask them what what are my creative needs and are they being met and how do I go about doing that for myself so that's the as much as it's scary being self-employed and and in the art it also can be really exciting in that way because you are the person who chooses how you nourish yourself. Um, but you have to listen out for what those changes are. That's amazing. Great advice. Thank you, Lindsay. It has been a joy chatting with you. Thank you for joining me in the music room. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Music Room podcast today. If you'd like to know more about the show or the community that surrounds it, head to musicroom.community. The link is in the show notes.